Again, I want to say I appreciate you coming out, as Greg's already mentioned, on a Saturday morning when there are many other things you could be doing to study these kinds of questions and issues. I appreciate your interest. And again, I mentioned if you have just come in and wasn't here for the earlier hour, if you'll send an email to that address that's on the screen, I'll be glad to share these uh, PowerPoints with you because I know we're covering a lot of material and going through it at a pretty rapid pace. We're continuing to talk about the divisions within the Church of Christ <clears throat> that happened and occurred back in the mid-1900s, 1950s and 1960s, and now we're going to focus on the sponsoring church arrangement. Tomorrow afternoon, we'll be talking about the social gospel concept. Now, that is equally important to the rest of those because there is influences of that social gospel among us, and we'll talk about that tomorrow afternoon. So let's talk about the sponsoring church arrangement. Sponsoring church arrangement was, I categorize it as the second major issue, and I know we've talked about the college and the budget, but the issue was shifted to the orphan's home. That became the major issue, seemingly, in these controversies. And a second major issue was the sponsoring church arrangement. That was also referred to as church cooperation, the sponsoring church centralization, and the herald of truth. Those were just titles that were used to describe the controversy over the sponsoring church arrangement. So during those days, uh, someone would say, well, this church over here, we split over the herald of truth. And somebody else would say, well, we split over church centralization. Someone else would say, well, we split over the sponsoring church. It was all the same thing. Uh, it had to do with the concept of churches supporting a particular church, and we'll talk about how that worked in a moment in the church cooperation or the centralization issue. But here's what the sponsoring church was. You had a number of churches that would send to another church. This time, we don't have a separate organization now, not at this juncture. We will before we get through. But the concept of a sponsoring church was, and the, the size of the circles does not represent the size of the churches, nor does it necessarily represent anything other than this was a lot of money that went to this church. But you have a church here that became a sponsoring church. By sponsoring church, they would take on a work and they would use the terminology, we assume a work. That was a term that many of those churches would use. Of preaching the gospel, and maybe it'd be a particular effort of preaching, for example, on the radio or television. And they would solicit funds from all of these other churches. And so all of these hundreds of churches or thousands of churches would send their money to this sponsoring church so more good could be done in the preaching of the gospel. Very much like Campbell's concept of the missionary society. Remember his idea was that that a church can do more than an individual can do, and a group of churches can do more than one church can do. So if we pool all of our money together, this church may only have, say, $10,000, and this one may only have 20000 this one may have 100000 and so you do that multiplied by thousands, then you might have several million dollars that we could pool together, and that does a lot of good in preaching the gospel. That's the idea of the sponsoring church arrangement. Now, as in the other cases, let's give the history behind that. The interest, uh, uh, history is most interesting. There was a push for greater evangelism after World War II. As often the case with our nation, as we would go fight a war, when the war is over, rather than just leaving all the devastation, the nation goes back and, and uh, nation builds. And so we try to rebuild uh, some of Germany and Japan and help them out. Well, that provided an opportunity for brethren to look and say, you know what, the gospel needs to be preached in Germany. Now that the war is over, we can go in there and start preaching the gospel. And in Japan, we can go there and preach the gospel. So the church at Broadway in Lubbock, Texas, began to focus upon Germany, and they became a sponsoring church in sending preachers and works and uh, focused on the work of preaching the gospel in Germany. 
Well, another church here, the Union Street Church in Memphis, Tennessee, a little closer to us, they focused on Japan, and so brethren would send money to them so they could sponsor the work in Japan and take care of some things in Japan. And so it began on that, that scale just after the end of the World War II. Well, the Herald of Truth became the focal point of the sponsoring church arrangement. That started in 1947. It started many years before it really became the, the hottest controversy of the 1950s. It began in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, with a man named James W. Nichols. It was his brainchild. He's the one that conceived the idea of having this program called the Herald of Truth. Well, three years later, 1950, he joined efforts with a man named James D. Williford, and Nichols and Williford together began to promote this Herald of Truth program. Now, it is not attached to a church yet. They just, they're forming the Herald of Truth. So in 1951, they went to the Broadway Church in Lubbock, Texas. That was the church focusing on Germany. It was already a sponsoring church. And they offered it. Now, that's a key concept. They offered it to the church at Broadway. They had a concept and the, the idea of a sponsoring church, so they offered this work of the Herald of Truth to Broadway. Broadway turned them down. The reason why is significant. We'll come back to that. So put that in the back of your mind. So that same year, they went to the Fifth and Highland Church in Abilene, Texas, and Abilene, at, uh, Fifth and Highland in Abilene said, we'll take it. And they, they took on the work. It first started as a radio program, nationwide radio program, something that a single church could not do. The church here at College View, and no matter how much money you have, you can't afford to put on a nationwide tele uh, radio program. But they could with this concept of the sponsoring church. Later it became a nationwide television program. He was not the first speaker, nor was he the last speaker, but the, the featured speaker during those years of the controversy was a man named Batsel Barrett Baxter, Jr. Uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And he was a good speaker, and many of you saw him. If you were older, you perhaps saw him on the, the Herald of Truth national radio program or television program. Over some 2,000 churches sponsored and supported the concept of this um, Herald of Truth operation. So here's how that worked. You had a number of churches, over 2,000 of them, sent their money to the Fifth and Highland Church at Abilene, Texas. Now, by this time, they have taken on the Herald of Truth. They, and the Herald of Truth then became really a separate organization, though the elders oversaw that and they were involved in that organization. It was set up as a separate organization from the church. The Herald of Truth really wasn't the church, nor was it the radio program out here, but it was an organization that sponsored the, the radio program. So what you had was the sponsoring church, all of these churches sending money to the Fifth and Highland. It then turns around and turns it over to the Herald of Truth that then puts on the radio and television programs, and that was the procedure, and that was the operation of the Herald of Truth. Well, let's go a little bit further. Let's come on closer to our, our day and time. There was a... Uh, program called the One Nation Under God. I say a program. There was a sponsoring church arrangement that became known as the One Nation Under God. This was in 1991. That was phase one. There was supposed to be about four phases or five. I don't remember. And it kind of, instead of phasing, I think it kind of fizzled before the thing was over. And so they didn't quite get down the line to all the phases that they were headed toward. But they called this the One Nation Under God. It was put on by the Sycamore Church of Christ at Cookville, Tennessee. They would say, we have assumed this work. There's that terminology. We have assumed this work of the one nation under God. They solicited $10 million. At first, they were soliciting $17 million so that they could put out a mailing into everyone's home. And then before the thing was off of the ground, they, decided, they announced that we were able to reduce the cost down to $10 million. Now, that meant one of two things. That meant either they were about to waste $7 million of the brethren's money because if you can do it for $10 million, why did they need 17 Or they couldn't raise the 17 
and it was kind of a twist to say we were able to reduce it instead of saying we couldn't raise the money. The fact of the matter is they couldn't raise $17 million. And so they put it on for $10 million. That's a lot of money. I was living in North Alabama at the time, and in Lauderdale County where I was living at the time, a million dollars came out of our county alone to sponsor that program of the One Nation Under God. Well, I'm going to back up and talk about a little more about that One Nation Under God. What they did, if you don't remember that, the $10 million was, was spent to mail out a comic book. It's not comic book in the sense it was, but it's a comic book format. This is what they mailed into every home in the nation. Eight pages of a comic book where it uh, starts out with someone dealing with problems of drugs and, and divorce and other problems, and it's their search for the truth. And so eight pages, this is what they sent out for $17 million, plus one page in Reader's Digest. And you should have received this if you were a householder in uh, 1991. You should, have, you should have received this little comic book uh, concept. This is what they spent their money on. Very poor concept of trying to preach the gospel, but that's where the money was spent. And that was a sponsoring church arrangement. That came in, and it it's, uh, mentions on there, this is provided by the Churches of Christ of America. Never on it does it say anywhere, the Sycamore Church of Christ. That was the sponsoring church. But it wasn't their work alone, it was the work of the churches of Christ across America. That was the concept of the sponsoring church arrangement. Well, there were multiple sponsoring church arrangements on a small scale. As Greg mentioned a moment ago, it perhaps happens right here in this county. It happens in our county. Uh, and all across the country, there are multiple concepts of a sponsoring church arrangement. It might be just a county-wide thing where uh, five churches pool their money together to put on some kind of product or some kind of uh, program or a radio or maybe a cable television or they do it statewide. But this was the most notable one, that is the Herald of Truth that we've talked about. Now let's talk about the issue. Now I know the background and the history behind that. What was the real issue at hand? The issue here was not a matter of the preaching of the gospel. That was not what the, the question or the issue was. It was not the matter of preaching the gospel, should the gospel be preached. It was not a question of the use of the radio or television program. No one was opposed to using the radio, nor the preaching of the gospel on the television. The question was not the good being done, any more so than in the Missionary Society back in the 1849s. The question was not, can churches ever cooperate? We're going to talk about cooperation before we get through today. But the question was not, can churches cooperate? The question was not a matter of methods. It wasn't, what method should we use in the preaching of the gospel? But the question was and is, can church A send money to church B to preach the gospel? Can church A send money to church B to preach the gospel? Can multiple churches work under one eldership? Those became the questions, and that was the issue at hand. So the problem with the sponsoring church arrangement was, where is the scripture that shows church A could send money to church B? Church B being Fifth and Highland in the Herald of Truth, or Sycamore and the One Nation Under God. Where is the authority for church A to send money to church B for the preaching of the gospel? And can multiple churches work through one eldership? Now let's begin to list some of the problems that we had with the sponsoring church arrangement. Well, first of all, as we've stated with all the other things, the missionary society, instrumental music, the uh, college in the budget, the orphan's home. The problem was there was no Bible authority, and here is there is no Bible authority. I'll not go back over Acts 15 because we just did that at the last hour. But in Acts 15, they established authority by command, example, and necessary inference. Well, when we come to the matter of the sponsoring church arrangement, there is no command. There is no direct statement. You will not find anywhere in the New Testament where one church sent money to another church for the preaching of the gospel. 
You will never find in the New Testament anywhere an example of where a church did that. You'll never find where one church received money from another church and assumed a work larger than it can perform. And what about assuming a work larger than it can perform? Can you imagine the church here at College View deciding, we're going to put on a television program out of uh, WSM out of Nashville. And it's going to cost us five, uh, it's going to cost us a hundred million dollars to have this program. I don't know what it would cost, but let's just say, let's say it costs ten million dollars. And obviously you couldn't afford ten million dollars. So you assume a work larger than you can take on, and then you ask all the churches around the nation to help you do what you've assumed, taking on a larger role. Wouldn't that be kind of like me deciding, I'm assuming I'm, I'm going to buy a Rolls Royce. Now, I can't afford one, but would all of you as individuals kind of help me pay for my Rolls Royce? Because I'm traveling to preach the gospel, by the way. You're helping the work of the Lord. Would, would that be all right? Well, that doesn't make good sense, does it? But you remember what the question was, can church A send money to church B? There's no command, there's no example, there's no necessary inference in that. But let's talk about another principle that was wrong with that. And I want you to understand that it violates the limitation of the authority of elders. Now let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. The elders of a local church have a limitation of their role and their authority. And let's see what that is. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the elders who are among you, I exhort, this is Peter writing, who am also a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also partakers of the glory that shall be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, are you reading with me now? Which is among you, serving as overseers. The elders of this church have oversight that is limited to that church, the text tells me. Did you read it, verse 3? Verse 2, excuse me. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, he said. These elders of this church are limited to their oversight of that church, the text tells me. Well, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul told the Ephesian elders they were to shepherd the flock of God which was among them. So both passages tell me the elders of this church are limited to the oversight of this church. They have no oversight of any other church, no matter how small or how large or how close they are in proximity. So the church here, the elders of this church, have no authority over all of these other local churches. Now, quite common in that day and time, and perhaps it's still common among some of these churches that have supported institutionalism was for this church, because it's quite large, decide we need a congregation on the other end of the county over there because there's, very, there's no church over there. And so they would send some of the brethren out to start a new church. And they form an entirely different congregation over here in another end of the county, and the elders, they would call that a mission church, and the elders of this church would not only oversee this church, but until this one gets completely off of the ground, the elders would oversee that church as well. There's no Bible authority for that. Because once this new work is formed, we have now a separate organization, a separate church, and the elders of this church have no Bible authority for overseeing the work of that church. They're limited to this congregation, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Well, furthermore, the elders of these churches, no matter who they may be and how close they may be in proximity, have no authority over this church, because 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. Well, we'll come back to that principle in just a moment. But I want to suggest to you that it destroys congregational autonomy. When we talk about congregational autonomy, we're talking about being self-governing. I don't mean by that that we govern ourselves versus the Lord governing us, but each church is autonomous. The Bible teaches us from 1 Peter chapter 5, elders in every church, Acts 14, 23. That means each local church is autonomous, and that is the elders do not have any authority over any other church. 
So each congregation is autonomous and independent. The church here at College View is autonomous. You're self-governing. The church where I preach has no authority. We have no direct ties with you in the sense of organizational ties. You have none with us. So our elders don't have anything to do with this church as far as overseeing this work. And the brethren here have no oversight over the church where I preach, or any other church for that matter. So each church is autonomous and independent. But what you have in the sponsoring church arrangement is you had a, an effort to oversee a brotherhood work. The sponsoring church arrangement involved not the work of a local church, but involved the work of all of these churches under one eldership. How so? Well, let me give you evidence of that. The Herald, Herald of Truth was a brotherhood work. Evidence of that? Well, in 1973, there was a meeting of brethren from all across the country in Memphis, Tennessee, on September the 10th, 1973. The Herald of Truth was well underway at this point. What was the meeting about? Well, brethren all across the country confronted the Abilene elders. They asked them, come to meet at a central location, come to Memphis, Tennessee. So the Abilene elders traveled to Memphis, Tennessee to meet with elders and, and brethren from all across the country. What was their problem? Well, the problem was they were concerned about things their preacher was teaching. That at Abilene, there were some things going on in the pulpit, and the preacher was saying some things they didn't agree with. You're tolerating a preacher there, and we're having to support the work you're doing. Now, what concern was that of, of these elders of another church? Well, because we're part of that. This is a brotherhood work now. You see, it's not just your work. This is our work. Something else. They, they didn't like the direction that the Abilene elders were taking the herald of truth. You see, that's our work, too. You're sponsoring a radio and television program, and we're concerned about the direction you're taking it. So we're concerned about our work, but we need to talk to the elders there about what they're doing. And so it became a brotherhood work, you see. It wasn't the work of a local church. It was a brotherhood work. And there's evidence in that meeting of September of 1973. Well, I want to raise this question. We're talking about local church autonomy. If a church can over, uh, turn over part of its work to another eldership, why can it not turn over all of its work to another eldership? If not, why not? Let me illustrate. If we can take some of the money from this church and turn it over to this church over here for the preaching of the gospel, and it's still our work, but we're going to let those elders over there at Fifth and Highland oversee that work for us, that portion of our work, why can't we turn our members over and let the elders of this church oversee our members? Elders are to watch for souls, by the way, aren't they? So why can't we do that? If not, why not? If we can turn over part of the work, why can't we turn over all the work? Why not take all the resources? Instead of just sending the Fifth Sunday contribution over there to Fifth and Highland, why don't we turn our entire contribution over there and then send them all of our bills and let them pay all of our bills? And when we decide whether we want to expand the buildings, let the elders at Fifth and Highland decide that for us. Why not? Can we not turn that over to them? We can do part, why not all? Why not our discipline? Why don't we let those elders of the sponsoring church oversee the discipline and who we withdraw from? Why don't we let them oversee our worship and our work and everything that's involved in the work of the church? You say, well, that would be absurd. We can't do that. Why not? Why not? You say, well, the elders of this church are limited to this church, and the elders of this church are limited to that one. Exactly. That's our point. If you can't turn over all of it, you can't turn over any of it to them. It destroys church autonomy. Another thing that's wrong with the sponsoring church arrangement is it activates the church universal. The universal church, as we mentioned last evening, has no organization. It has no treasury. It has no work, and it has no officers. The church, in the universal sense, consists of individual members that are a part of the universal church. The local church has officers. It has elders and deacons. The local church has a treasury, has work to do, has organization, etc. 
But the universal church does not. The sponsoring church is a larger organization than the local church. It's not the local church, but it's a larger organization than the local church. And therefore it activates the universal church. Here's evidence of that. I said we'd come back to this. Remember when James Nichols and, and James Williford in 1951 went to the Broadway church and offered them the Herald of Truth? And Broadway turned them down, so they went to Fifth and Highland the same year in 51 and offered it to them. Why did they turn them down? Well, Nichols and Wilford said, if you take on this program, the Herald of Truth, that's our baby, but we want you to take on the work. When you put on this work, don't mention Broadway. Don't mention the work of Broadway. What we want you to say is that this is the work of the churches of Christ. Now, can you imagine several churches getting together and we say, we would like the College View Church to put on a program, but don't ever mention College View. And don't mention this is the work of College View. This is the work of all of these churches. You know what that said? That said it's, it's the work of the churches of Christ. He says it's a brotherhood work. It's something larger than the local church. You're taking on a work larger than Broadway, so don't mention Broadway. Don't mention the work of Broadway, they said. And it's the work of the churches of Christ. Well, the elders at Broadway didn't much like that. And so they said, no, we won't take that on. And that's why they rejected the work in 51. So what were the problems? Well, there's no Bible authority. It violates the limitation of elders. It destroys congregational autonomy. And it sought to activate the universal church, much like Campbell did in 1849 in the Missionary Society. And those were the problems with the matter of the sponsoring church. Now, let's spend some time talking about the arguments that are made to justify that, and then we will be through. Let's talk about some of the arguments. Now, the arguments are a little more involved here on the sponsoring church than they were on the orphan's home question. The orphan's home carried a lot of emotion with that. And a lot of the arguments were made based on emotion. But this came down to more, what does the text have to say? You didn't have quite the emotion with the matter of the sponsoring church arrangement. What were some of the things that were said? Well, here's one of the arguments that was made, and that is that churches sent to other churches in benevolence in New Testament times. And they would cite passages like Acts 11, 27 to 30, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and a parallel verse to that would be Romans 15 that we... I uh, won't take time to pay attention to it just for the moment. And though the argument, the argument is, here's a case where one church sent money to another church in the case of benevolence. And if you can send in benevolence, you can send in evangelism, was the argument. And they were absolutely right in the fact that Acts 11 and 1 Corinthians 16 2 Corinthians 8 was a case where one church would send to another church in the case of benevolence, but it wasn't a matter of evangelism. Let's analyze those. Well, I want you to notice, first of all, that the funds that were received were used for benevolence and not for evangelism. Acts 11, let's just start with Acts chapter 11. Open your Bible there and we'll, we'll come to the other passages a little bit later. But let's start with Acts chapter 11 beginning at verse 27. In Acts 11 and in verse 27, in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, and it happened in the days of Claudius season. The disciples, each one according to his ability, determined to send relief. It's benevolence. To the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And we'll come back to Acts 11 in just a moment, but I'm establishing the fact that the funds were used for benevolence, and, and uh, we see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. I want to suggest to you that those who make this argument they saw a difference in evangelism and benevolence. But they act like there's no difference in evangelism and benevolence. If you can do it in one, you can do it in the other. 
But they saw a difference. And the evidence was they didn't approve of a missionary society in the preaching of the gospel, but they did approve of a benevolent society. They saw a difference in evangelism and benevolence. Quite often in those debates, brethren would ask, you know what, if we take this organization called a benevolent society and turn it into a missionary society to preach the gospel, could we support it? Their answer was no. Can't do that. We can do this in benevolence, but we can't do it in evangelism. They saw a difference in evangelism and benevolence. So those passages have nothing to do with the church sponsoring another church in the matter of preaching the gospel. Here's a second point about Acts chapter 11 and the other text. The receiving church was a church that was in need and not a creation of their own. Look at Acts chapter 11 and in verse 29. Acts 11 and verse 29 says, The disciples, each one according to his ability, determined to send relief. That was a need that was not of their own making. When a church says, we have assumed the work of this radio and television program, that's not a need, but that's a creation of their own making. We've taken on a radio program or a mailing out of a, something for $10 million. We can't afford $10 million. Please help us to do that. That's not at all parallel from Acts 11 to what goes on in the sponsoring church arrangement. But I want you to understand this principle, that we cannot crisscross in God's plan. This became clear to me as... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was very young when the issues started, but I came along late enough, or early enough, that I saw some of the tail end of some of these debates as they went on into the 70s. In 1977, I heard Ward Hoagland debate Roy Deaver on this question of the sponsoring church arrangement. Brother Deaver argued that the church could uh, take this principle of Acts 11, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8, and apply it to evangelism. Hoagland would make the point, we can't crisscross in God's plan. Let me illustrate God has a plan for forgiveness. God has a plan for the alien sinner. And the plan for the alien sinner is to repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38. God has a plan for the erring Christian, and it's to repent and pray, Acts 8 and verse 22. We can't crisscross in God's plan. That is, I can't take the, the matter of repent and be baptized and apply it to the erring Christian. And I can't take the matter of repent and pray and apply it to the alien sinner, can I? If you can crisscross in God's plan when an alien sinner comes and has not ever been baptized, I can say, well, all you need to do is repent and pray. Evidence? I can find where they did that in the New Testament. And I can tell one who is an erring child of God, and they say, I want to make correction. Oh, you've got to repent and be baptized. You can't crisscross in God's plan. Let's try that in another area. Let's take the matter of worship. When it comes to the matter of the Lord's Supper, Acts 20 and verse 7, it was only on the first day of the week. When it comes to another matter of worship, such as singing, as in the case of Paul and Silas, Acts 16 and verse 25, they were singing on a day other than the first day of the week, so we could sing at any time. We can't crisscross in God's plan. I can't take this matter of singing and say, you know, we can only do that on the first day of the week. What would you have thought if I'd have got up here a moment ago after our brother led us in a song, saying, y'all have sinned because you've done something that is only limited to the first day of the week, and you sang it on Saturday. You can't crisscross in God's plan. Or what if I said, well, when we get through here, we won't have the Lord's Supper because you can have that at any time, and... And uh, we might be rushed tomorrow with all the services we have. Let's have the Lord's Supper today. What's wrong with that? You can't crisscross in God's plan, can you? Well, let's try that in the matter of church officers. In the matter of elders, the qualifications are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the following verses, 8 through 13. They're not the same. For example, elders are to have believing children. They're to have the ability to teach, which is not required of deacons. What would we do if we began to crisscross and say deacons have to meet the qualifications of having children that believe and have the ability to teach? And say elders don't have to have that because I can find qualifications that don't include those two and let's apply those to the elders. You can't crisscross in God's plan. 
Well, when it comes to the work of a church, we have the same thing. In the matter of evangelism, we have the matter of a church sending to the evangelist. Philippians 4 and verse 15. In the matter of benevolence, we had a plan in Acts chapter 11, the passage we're studying, where one church sent money to another church in the matter of, of, of benevolence. I cannot crisscross in God's plan and say, well, let's take the matter of evangelism, and we're going to take the principle that actually applies to benevolence and apply to evangelism. We can't do that. Any more than we can do it in a matter of worship, and we can do that in the matter of elders and deacons, and we can do that in the matter of the conditions of remission of sins. Still looking at Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, I want us to talk about what actually happened in these texts. So let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Let's talk about what did and what did not happen in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, what you had happened was there was a need wherein the church at Antioch sent to that need. Let's read again verses 27, 28, and 29. And on verse 30 as well. In those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, and this happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, the disciples where? That is at Antioch. We just saw in verse 27. Each one according to his ability determined to send relief to the brethren who are dwelling in Judea. We'll see more about that in a moment. And this they also did and sent it, which shows it was collective activity. They pooled their money together. They sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Well, what we have here is the church at Antioch sent to the elders in Judea. Now, there were multiple churches in Judea, according to the First Thessalonians 2 and 14, and Galatians 1 and verse 22. There wasn't just one church in Judea. I don't know which churches they had in mind, but there was a church at Jerusalem. There's one at Joppa and Lydda and Emmaus and one at Bethany. And those are some of the areas where there may have been churches. There were elders to be in every church, Acts 14 and verse 23. And what we have in Acts chapter 11 is that Barnabas and Saul served as messengers, and they took the money and they sent it to the elders. That means if they sent to the brethren at Emmaus, they sent it to the elders there. If they went to the church at Jerusalem, they sent it to the elders there, or whatever churches they may have gone to, that would fit the text of Acts chapter 11. What we do not find in Acts chapter 11 is that Antioch, by the messengers of Barnabas and Saul, sent the elders, sent the money to the elders of the church at Jerusalem. It became a sponsoring church, and it then distributed money to these other churches. Now that assumes two things. Number one, that assumes that the church at Jerusalem was the only church that had elders. That assumption cannot be proven. That assumes also that the elders of the church at Jerusalem were overseeing the work of the other churches. That cannot be proven. Acts 11 is no proof of a sponsoring church arrangement. But let's go further. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. What you have in those passages, and we might add one more, Romans 15, 25 to 30 where the churches of Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia determined to send relief according to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's not 8 and verse 9, but that's chapters 8 and chapter 9. That they determined to send relief to the brethren. Acts, or, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 19 said that each church selected its own messengers. They may have been the same, Paul and Titus and others that were the messengers, but each one made the determination for themselves what messenger they would use to send the money. And so you have these churches of Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Galatia, and Antioch, for example, sending to the church at Jerusalem that it may take care of those needy saints. That fits the pattern of 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. What you did not have 
and you do not find is all of these churches, like at Philippi, Corinth, and Thessalonica, and Galatia, sending to the church at Antioch, it becoming a sponsoring church, and it in turn then takes the money and sends it down here to Jerusalem to take care of the needy saints. Those passages are not a pattern of the New Testament church being a sponsoring church. But here's another argument that has been made. Now, what we saw in these other passages was the church did send money to another church in the matter of benevolence, but you never find it in evangelism. The argument was made that Philippi became a sponsoring church. And the effort is to tie these two passages together. And the assumption is these are talking about the same time and the same event. One passage says, No church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 and in verse 8 that I robbed other churches, plural, taking wages of them to do you service. The concept and the idea is that the Philippi church was the sponsoring church. All these other churches mentioned here sent their money to Philippi and it became then a sponsoring church that sponsored Paul and his work. Well, let's see how that fits. That doesn't fit logically. That doesn't work here logically. You say, why? Because Paul said, no church communicated with me. Are you reading Philippians 4.15? No church communicated with me concerning and re, uh, giving and receiving. By the way, the word communicated comes from the word kononia. It means fellowship. That would mean that none of the other churches, except Philippi, had fellowship. So if you were one of the churches that sent to the sponsoring church, it wasn't your work, you didn't have fellowship. Can you imagine that? The church here at College View send money over to El Bethel where I preach and then we put on a work, but you're not having fellowship with the men we're supporting. We just want your money though. Come on, send your money. Please send it. But you're not having fellowship with them. That doesn't fit logically. We're not talking about the same event. It doesn't fit chronologically. Notice what Paul said in uh, Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 15. He said, when I departed from Thessalonica, not after I got to Corinth, when he was at Corinth, that's when he had a multitude of churches, or a plurality of churches, sending money to him, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8, I took or robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. But what he was talking about at Philippi, in Philippians 4 and verse 15, he said, when I departed. It was not after he got there. What does he mean, when I departed? Look at the next verse, verse 16, even at Thessalonica. That is, when he's talking about leaving Philippi, he's talking about when he was at Thessalonica, not after he got to Corinth, so it doesn't fit chronologically. This application of Philippians 4 doesn't fit geographically. It doesn't make any sense to send you money 100 miles north to Philippi for Philippi then to send it 200 miles south to Corinth. That doesn't make, make any sense, does it? So Philippians 4 is not a sponsoring church. It doesn't fit. It was a different time. Those passages are not talking about the same event. Now this is important as um, the argument was made during those days that you brethren don't believe in cooperation. In fact, those who opposed the sponsoring church, just like on the orphan's home you were called orphan haters, or you don't believe in taking care of orphans, on the sponsoring church question, those who opposed it were said to be anti-cooperation. In fact, much was written about the anti-cooperative brethren. They don't believe in churches cooperating. And they just don't believe churches ought to cooperate. And by cooperation, they mean that one church is to send money to another church, like the Fifth and Highland, and it puts on then a, a program, and then we sponsor that, and we, we provide for that. Let's talk about cooperation. There's going to be something that would be familiar here in a town that's known for mules. And here are two mules that are cooperating. They're plowing in their field. 
Here's what's going on. They are cooperating because they're doing the same work, they're accomplishing the same goal, but they're not tied together. Uh, this farmer and this mule over here, they're plowing out in this field, and maybe it's even on the other side of the county, that farmer is plowing with his mule, and those mules are cooperating, aren't they? What in sense are they cooperating? They are, they are cooperating because they're doing the same work, they're accomplishing the same goal, but there is no tie to tie them together. They're working independently. They're autonomous and independent, aren't they? But here's occasion where they decided to take those two mules and they tie them together with the harness and the hames and the, and the single tree and the double tree. They put them all together. And where we have them cooperating, they're doing the same thing, they're doing the same work, they're accomplishing the same goal. The difference between this and that is you've taken the mules and you've tied them together, haven't you? Now, in both cases, they are cooperating. Would you say this farmer over here who says, you know, I like to plow by myself, and you just go ahead and plow by yourself, and I'll plow when I want to, and you plow when you want to, and you decide, you make your own decision, I'll make mine. Would you say he's, a, he's against cooperating with farming? Not at all. Let's take another case. Here are two women, and uh, what are they doing? They're cleaning up their community. One decides to go out in the county, the other one in the city. They are cooperating. They're doing the same work. They're accomplishing the same goal, but they're just not tied together at all. This lady does when picks up what she wants when she wants, and this one, independent of her, does what she wants. They are cooperating and cleaning up the county, aren't they? But over here, we have those same two women. They decide to cooperate by putting their monies together. They're accomplishing the same thing. They're doing the same work. They're doing the same goal. But now they're tied together because they've decided to pool their money together and their resources together so they can buy their products together and maybe even hire somebody to do the cleanup for them. In both cases, they're cooperating, aren't they? What's the difference? The difference is they're they cooperating, but they're working independent. Over here, they're tied together. Well, let's go again. Here we have two local churches. We might have the church at College View. We might have the church at El Bethel where I preach. We are cooperating. We're doing the same work. We're accomplishing the same goal. We're just not organizationally tied together. You have gospel meetings when you decide you want to have one. We'll have a gospel meeting when we want one. We'll buy radio time when we want. You buy newspaper time when you want. We're cooperating. In what sense? We're doing the same work, accomplishing the same goal. We're not tied together. But in the sponsoring church arrangement, what you had was two local churches or a thousand or two thousand local churches sending money to the sponsoring church. Now, what do we have this time? Well, we have them cooperating, doing the same work, accomplishing the same goal. The difference was they're organizationally tied together. What I'm trying to illustrate to you is the fact that this concept of having a sponsoring church being the only way churches could cooperate and we are against cooperation is absolutely false. There is nothing true about that at all. That was not the case at all. So what have we seen in our study this morning? I know that's a kind of a hurried, quick look at the sponsoring church arrangement. But hopefully you get the concept of what went on in that history of the sponsoring church. We have the history behind it, how it all began, how these churches assumed their work, what the real issue was. The question was, can church A send money to church B to preach the gospel? Can the elders of one church oversee the work of another church? Those were the questions at hand. And what we saw was the problems with that. There's no Bible authority for the sponsoring church. It activates the church in a universal sense. It's a work larger than the local church. And furthermore, we saw that the church, the elders of a, of a local church are limited to their oversight of that local church. And that was the case in the sponsoring church arrangement. We saw that these arguments, though not based on the emotion that you had with the other issue that we talked about at the previous hour, they were arguments that did not justify the case any more than those arguments did. Now tomorrow at 2.30, when we come together again, we're going to talk about the um, 
social gospel concept and how the shift has gone from that which is spiritual to the social and what was behind the social gospel concept. It didn't begin with our brethren. It began back in the 1800s. And we'll bring it up to date and how that's going on even in our own, uh, among our own brethren, that is those in fellowship with us, doing much of some of the same kinds of things that we saw back then. Come back and be with us then. There may be one more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. If you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come all together? We stand and while we sing.